scriptures and turn back to the 1 Corinthians 4 passage. Today we're going to look at the imitation of Christ. The word imitation used in our text in verse 16 is the word mimetai. It's the word we get in English mimic from. Um, this word is used six times in the New Testament. Uh, we're asked to imitate God in Ephesians 5 2. Paul says, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, that you can imitate me. Um, you can imitate other good churches, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14. And we are even exhorted to imitate the faith of godly leaders in our church in Hebrews 6 and verse 12. But in each one of those cases, it's not a perfect copy that we're supposed to be. It's a patterned copy. In other words, when we were told to imitate um, Paul, like we do uh, Jesus, or in order to imitate Jesus, I should say, in chapter 11 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, it's not that we are to imitate everything about Jesus down to the very detail. The idea is we're not to pick up his gestures or if we're a man to wear a beard or his mannerisms, but the idea is kind of fleshed out in 1 John 2 and verse 6, where it says, if you have Christ Jesus as your Lord, then you should walk as he walked. Um, so the idea is to be like him and who he is and what he's all about. And um, everyone here today is imitating someone. And again, by imitating, I don't mean exact detail. You know, the Amish, they all seek to or strive to look alike. The same similar beards. They wear the same similar clothes. If you've ever been in an area where there is an Orthodox Jewish area, they all wear the black suits and the same kind of hat and and uh, they are trying to be exactly imitating of one another in their detail. It's not like that, but taking the pattern of Jesus' life, namely his death and resurrection, and putting it down over ourselves as a template to which we copy life, and to which we make our decisions. It's what the grid from which we live our lives out of. Um, now, in psychology, this concept is called mirroring. And you can see it because... Um, we all mirror someone, and we all reflect someone. And you can see it often in a very simple way. As children grow up, they often mirror their parents. They, they kind of begin to look the same. Um, they have very same mannerisms, tone of voice. Um, if you make a phone call, it's hard to distinguish between the mom and the daughter or the father and the son time, sometimes. You stick around friends long enough, and you get closer to them, close to them. You might pick up some of the things they say and some of the things they do. Um, a spouse with another spouse, and, and so on. So um, imitating is a, is a big deal, and we mirror someone. I remember growing up way back in the 70s when, or the 80s, or I think it was, be like Mike, like Michael Jordan. The, the idea wasn't that I was going to be everything that he was, but the idea was that kids wanted to be like him as far as their skill in basketball went. And, of course, people mimic celebrities, sports heroes. Um, even I remember going to Bible college, and everybody was learning how to preach, and you'd see a famous preacher, and you'd start doing it the way he did and talk how he talked. And Ron Comfort came to our church, and I remember trying to imitate his voice a little bit. You know, when you're immature, you kind of you do some of those things. But someone has said, and you're probably familiar with the statement, Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, I want to change it a little bit, adapt it to our message today. Let me tell you, as we look at this passage, I think imitation is the sincerest form of faith. Because 
when our faith is strong and we're growing in our relationship with God, here's what our greatest passion and desire will be. Here's how we, can I say, flatter God? We become like his son, and there's a pattern to follow. And so Paul says, you should imitate me. I urge you to do so. And in truth, we look at chapter 11, verse 1, as I said before, he says, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so he's not just saying, look at me. He's saying, look at Christ through me. That's what imitation is all about. Now, before we go any further, I, I got to set you straight on a couple things because you're going to think, you know, the wrong thing here. Let me start off with saying this. When you imitate Jesus, i.e. through Paul or anyone else that's a model for you, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There's always a context for imitation. And for believers in Corinth, it was their surrounding society. And, and our text give us, gives us a little bit of an idea of how they struggled because of that. And there's a couple words I want to highlight just to give you the context of what the Corinthian pattern was. And, and by the way, that's important because when you're imitating someone, you have to make choices. For us as believers, as it was for the Corinthian believers, they had to choose between were they going to imitate Christ or were they going to imitate culture? Were they going to be like Jesus or they were going to be like those around them? So we've entitled this series In Jesus and In Jersey because every one of us today make that choice every day. Will we be more like Jesus or will we be more like Jersey? All the things that take place in our culture and all our, the marks and characteristics of our society. And in Corinthian society, they had a pattern. And one of the words that describe it amongst many used in this epistle is used in our text in chapter 4 and verse 6. It says puffed up. It's also used later in our text twice more in verses 18 and 19. Also, again, in this very same section in chapter 5 and verse 2. A little later in chapter 8 and verse 1. And then finally in chapter 13 and verse 4. But the word puffed up means to be arrogant. It means to think that you're superior. That you kind of have arrived. Um, as teenagers say today, I've been told, you think you're all that in a bag of chips. And, th and that's kind of how the Corinthians saw themselves. They thought spiritually that they had attained. That they had reached the status that everybody was shooting for. And, and, and one of the realities that you have to come to grips with as I study this text that I want to ask you to also realize today is this, that you can't imitate Corinth and imitate Christ simultaneously. You cannot do both. But I'm shocked, and maybe you are, that that is what a lot of Christians seek to do on a regular basis. They want to be one type of identity or one type of imitation when they're with God's people or at church, but at their jobs, at their homes, in their relationships outside of here, they often more imitate their culture than Christ. And what you're going to see in our text today is that when you imitate Corinth, you will seek to be upwardly mobile. It means you want to go up the ladder, more prominence, more power, more possessions, up and up you go. And you want everybody else to know it. And you're puffed up about it. And you think it's okay. I think the Corinthians, if they lived in our day, would be quite comfortable with being on Facebook. Because they are all about that kind of stuff. But see, upwardly mobile in Corinth, but down, downwardly mobile in Christ. Um, you are, the goal was to inflate yourself. To let everybody know how great you were. Thus the word puffed up. It means to inflate yourself. But in following Christ... You're to deflate yourself. In other words, you're to be marked by not by pride, but by humility. It's not how high you can get, but how low you can get. 
See, in Corinth, you wanted to look big, but following Jesus, we want to look small because he is big. And almost on every point possible, these two identities and these two ways of imitating are antithetical and completely opposite of one another. Another word that finds itself in our text is the word boast. It's in chapter 4 and verse 7 in our text, but it's used a number of other times in chapter 1, verses 29 and 31, chapter 3, verse 21, again in chapter 13 and verse 4, and other places. And the word boast means exactly what it is. We would just say brag today. And what the Corinthians were doing inside their church is what everybody outside their church was doing, and that was bragging on themselves, comparing themselves to other people in the church. Instead of bragging and boasting in God, which Paul says for the believer is the right way to go. See, it was a community acceptance that they wanted. They wanted to be good and accepted and popular and thought well of inside the church and outside the church. So they were flaunting themselves. They were showing people how pious they were, using their spiritual gifts to get attention for themselves. And there are other words in 1 Corinthians that give us an idea about the context in which imitating of Christ must be worked out in. The word wise in chapter 1, powerful, noble birth. These are the things that they struggled with. See, you and I, when we're called to imitate Jesus, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You go to a public high school. You go to the university. You work in a job where practically no one there knows Christ. See, that's where you're called to do it. And there's going to be struggles. There's going to be problems. There's going to be temptations. And we can learn a lot from what the Corinthians did so that we will not follow their pattern and learn better to follow the pattern of Jesus. See, the Corinthians were not imitating Christ in their context. Rather, they had chosen to imitate the Corinthian culture. So I want to take a look at the next few verses, and I want you to see the contrasts that are in there. Corinthians are all about the crown now. That's what their culture was. Get all you can now. Rise to the top now. Show everybody how great you are now. There was no future. They weren't looking off to eternity. There was not part of the equation at all. See, they were following the pattern of the culture around them. They wanted to look good now. They wanted nothing to do with the cross. All they were concerned about is the crown. And Paul very explicitly makes this known to them and to us as readers in verse 8. When he introduces their dilemma... And their struggle with the word already, he uses it twice in verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. See, you're living for now. (laughs) There's no concern about eternity. Already you have all you want. He says again, already you have become rich. See, you've got it all now. They're putting on display all the great things that they have now and how they can be in Christ, quote unquote, and still be rich and pursuing pursuit pursuing the things of the world, and they can have all they want, and they're not going without anything, and there's no price they're paying for following Jesus. There's no cost to it whatsoever. And he says, and would that, he says, with this, without us, you have become kings, he says. So see the words there? All you want, rich, kings, you reign. See, they're acting as if they've already achieved spiritual status and they no longer need the cross. They were trying to climb the spiritual ladder as if it was the same as climbing the social ladder in Corinth. See, they put their spirituality on display. I don't know if you remember, and they still do because I bought a car not too long ago. But when you go in a showroom in a dealership with their cars... 
They don't put clunkers out in the showroom. They don't put the basic models out there with only a few things on it. No, they put the car that's beautifully waxed and shine. I mean, it's got the fancy wheels on it. It's got all the amenities inside. I mean, every proper possible gadget that you could possibly have. You know why? Because they're putting out on the show. They want everybody to see this is the best we offer. And look at this, right? And, and that's what the Corinthians were doing. They, they considered themselves God's showpiece. I mean, look at, God, look at us, God. We have all the spiritual gifts and we have all of this. I mean, let's just put it on display so everybody, will. there'll be no doubt who is really great. And it would be us. And then Paul comes along and he says to them, look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. You see what he says? He's exhibited to us. The word exhibited means to put on display. He says, listen, you're living your life for the wrong showcase. You see what he's saying? I mean, you're on the display for like the world would put themselves out there. But, you know, God's dealership is far different. I mean, when God puts his display model out on the floor to show you what he's really like and wants for you, it doesn't look anything like the Corinthian one. Not at all. Paul says God's showcase is completely different. Now, the world would think that God's showcase, i.e. the Apostle Paul, is a clunker. Maybe we call him a lemon when it comes to cars. But God says, oh, not at all, not at all. Paul says to the world, here's what it looks like. And this is a a word only used once right here in the New Testament, last of all. And in your mind, Paul wants you to consider thinking of this imagery, which would have been very familiar to the Corinthians, that when a Roman general won a victory, he would lead all the subdued enemies of Rome to the city and it'd be a long procession and they would have this long procession and all the citizens would line up across on each side of the street and they would laud the general and the soldiers and everybody and and all the people who had been taken captive were there and the very last ones, the last of all ones would be the slaves that nobody cared about and they would march those slaves and they would enter the arena and this word is used in the Septuagint to describe people that were marched into the arena, sentenced to death, and by being fed to the lions. That's what Paul says. He says, look at the way that you're displaying yourself. That's what Corinthians do. But Paul says, God's display is far different. Oh, far different. He says, God has made a spectacle out of us. And it's the word in English we get theater from. God says, listen, I'm going to put you on Broadway, all right? I'm going to really display you, but not for the reasons that the world puts out there. He says, because you think being displayed by God is an upward move, God says it's a downward move. Verse 10, he goes on and says this, we are fools for Christ's sake. And now watch this because there are three contrasts. And it goes back and forth. We are, you are. We are, you are. He says we are fools. And it's the word moron. We are morons, he says. Verse 10. For Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. Now notice the two phrases. For Christ's sake, in Christ. It looks like they would be the same in Christ for sake, but, but look how different, how opposite one another. Foolishness and wisdom. See, the Corinthians had borrowed uh, the wisdom of the world for their spirituality and called it being in Christ. 
Paul says, no, 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 no. When you do things for Christ and you are in Christ, it is not going to appear to be wise to the world. It's going to be foolish to the world. See, when you live for Jesus and you're imitating him and your goal is to have his life pattern to be yours, you will not come across as strong, second contrast. You will be weak. You will not for imitating Jesus Christ. At your school, at your job, perhaps even in your own family, you will not be held up in honor. And this is an honor-shame culture. You will not be highly esteemed. Not everyone's not going to sing your praises. No, instead, you will be a person who is under disrepute. People will dishonor you. They will think little of you. See, crossways and Corinthian ways are completely opposite. So when you stand in the, your bedroom and you open your closet, young ladies, to see what you're going to wear, see, we have to choose who we're imitating by the clothes that we wear. When we dress modestly, we are choosing the way of the cross because when you go to school, next to nobody dresses modestly. They want to show as much as they can of themselves to others. Why? Because that's the Corinthian way. That's the Jersey way. But as a Christian, we make opposite choices. Why? Because we're, being, we're imitating someone completely different. The hairstyles we get, whether we drink alcohol and get drunk, the parties we go to, the language we use. And listen, those are only the externals. But all the externals in our lives are just expressions and demonstrations of the inside desire of who we really want to imitate. And it is difficult, is it not? It is difficult for us who are exhorted in Scripture to live cruciform lives, and by that I mean the shape of the cross. It is difficult to choose that, knowing in doing so that we, were, we will appear foolish weak and dishonorable. Can I tell you this? Listen, that is why things are rapidly changing even in conservative Christian theology. We don't want to appear foolish. We don't want to appear archaic. We don't want to be anti-intellectual. So now to fit culture, to be accepted by everybody else so that we don't appear foolish, we have allowed the belief that women preachers are biblical. We have allowed the the belief, and, and the evangelicals are adopting it, that homosexuality is okay, that transgender is no big deal, that Adam and Eve really may have not been historical figures, that the evolution really may have been part of creation, and the inspiration of the Bible really wasn't what we thought it was. And every major doctrine is now under attack. And what I believe, at least one of the forces behind it is, we just don't want to appear foolish. Everybody else believes in evolution. Everybody's beginning to believe homosexuality is okay. Everyone else is adapting women preachers. You know why? So we don't want to look bad. And we have come to the place where we would rather look good than be good. And for the Apostle Paul... He says it's not possible, not possible. There's an interesting little word framework in this text. The very beginning of verse 11 and the very end of verse 13 has a little word in it. It's a particle. And in verse 11, it's translated to this present hour. In verse 13 in English, it's translated and are still which better or more literally would be to this very moment or point or time. 
And the idea that Apostle wants the Corinthians to get is that when you choose to imitate Jesus, you will look foolish, you will look weak, you will look dishonorable, he says. And it's not just this once in a while. It's not an event only at times. He says it's a lifestyle. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. The way that I follow Jesus and the way that I imitate him is not some temporary situation. He goes, it's been all the time I've known you, all the time since I've been gone from Corinth. And he says to this very present hour, I mean, while he's even writing this, he says, this is the life I live. He says, up until this point, to the very moment, he says, this is the kind of life that I live. Cruciformity and imitation of Jesus is an identity that impacts and affects everything. It is a lifestyle. It is not something that we just put on to look good when we're at church services, Paul says. So he begins to give us a list that what his life is like when he chooses to imitate Christ and to pick up his cross. In verses 11 13, he uses a number of words that are only used once in the New Testament because he wants to show you how unique this situation is. He says in verse 11, he says, To this present hour we hunger and thirst, and that's probably mainly because of his travel experiences. He didn't stay in the same place, and he was not always able to work and make enough money, so he wasn't assured that he was going to eat certain days and thirsty because he was on the road. He was often in prison, and when you were in prison, he was dependent on other people who cared about him to bring him food and drink because when you're in prison, the jailers and people in charge didn't have to do anything for you. So that was his life, always hungry, looking for something to drink, poorly clothed, he says. And that usually means, in the Greek, it's not having the right clothes for the right seasons. In other words, when it got cold, he didn't have the overcoat to put on. He was wearing clothes that most people wore just in the hotter times of the year. And so he would go cold, and he didn't have all the right clothes to wear. He didn't go to a closet and have 50 hangers on there and 40 pairs of shoes. That wasn't his life, he says. Buffeted, he goes on to describe, which is the word beaten. And every time you were put in prison, it was considered a shame. And you live with that the rest of your life because to be put in prison followed you around. You were a criminal. And you were beaten. If you were beaten publicly, it was horribly shameful. Homeless, just like Jesus. No permanent residence. It's often translated in other versions of vagabond. He went from place to place, never really having any place that he called home. And then he says, and we labor, working with our hands. If you were in Corinth and you were an honorable citizen, nobody who wanted to be an honorable citizen would have ever worked with their hands. It was considered low class, low social status. And if you had a trade, Paul made leather things. And if you did that and you worked with your hands to make a living, it was considered about as low as you can get other than being a slave. But Paul says, I choose to do that. He could have taken money from the church's Sometimes he took their help, but most of the time he did not. And so this is what Paul's life is. See, when I imitate Christ, I work all day long at my job, and I minister to people at night. That's the life he lives. Paul says, and if that's not enough to show you a good idea what imitating Christ is like in the first century, let me add a little bit more in verses 12 and 13. And he has three phrases, all of them beginning with the word when. This is not only what he does himself, but how he also responds to other people who think lowly of him. When he is 
treated horribly, and he was, for looking like he was a fool when he was weak and dishonored. He says, and when people revile me, when they verbally abuse me, we would say today they're being bullying to him, they're making fun of him, they're calling him names, and worse, you know what he does in response? He blesses. He says good things back to them when evil things are said to him. When he is persecuted and people actually physically do things to harm him, you know what he does? He endures it. He is patiently working through it. It means he doesn't try to get back at them. Paul was nonviolent. When people beat him, he didn't try to get back at them. There was no retaliation in his heart. There wasn't any desire for vengeance. He wasn't looking for his pound of flesh. Why? Because he carried a cross. When he was slandered, when people lied about him and, and told half-truths about him to make him look even worse than what they thought he really was, the Bible says, no, instead he responded by entreating people. And it means to treat or deal with people in kindness. So when people were anything but kind to him, in return, he is very kind back to them. Do you see what it means, church family? Do you see what it means to imitate Jesus? That's the pattern of the cross. And all the things that Paul's listing and going over and the contrast he's making and all the response that he's writing to them about, they are completely the opposite of anything they would ever see or expect in Corinth. He ends it up with another one-time use of this word in the New Testament. And he says... Like the scum of the world, verse 13, and the refuse of all things. It's a graphic word, and I won't tell you everything it means, but scum means the stuff that's scraped off, stuff that you don't want anybody else to see, worthless stuff that should be discarded. In other words, Paul says we're treated as if we are humanly disposable, that we are degraded, that we are the lowest of the low. He says that's how I live my life to this very present hour. That's what it means to imitate Jesus. See, the, the Corinthians said, oh yeah, we want to be kings. We want to sit on the throne. We want the crown now. We want riches and power and all the niceties of life. And we don't want to go, so Paul says, see, that's the Corinthian way. Not, my, not the way of Jesus. You say, Pastor Walker, what are you trying to do, shame me? <laughs> uh, what are you trying to do, put me on a guilt trip so I can live more, comp more committed to Jesus? Paul says, let me answer that question for you. Verse 14, the purpose is not to shame people, but because we're family, to warn people. Notice what he says. I, I view this as kind of like a family intervention. Verse 14 says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to just guilt you into being more like Jesus, because I know that'll never stick. He goes, you know what I'm telling you how I live? Because I want you to see the contrast between how I live and how you live. And how we both say we're in Christ, but our lives just don't even come close to matching up. So for Paul, he wants them to know, because he calls them in this verse, you are my beloved children. And he goes on to say, hey, you have a lot of guides, a lot of teachers, a lot of people have taught you scripture. You only have one spiritual father in the gospel, me. So he uses this family analogy of father and children. You know why? Because he wants them to know how much he deeply cares that he wouldn't say these things just to make them feel bad. He's saying these things like a father would say to his own child. Listen, I don't want you to be this way. I want you to follow the way that God wants. I want you to live your life the way it matters. 
So this is not, and Paul did not use this list of his, as some legalistic list so that you can become Paul. And he is not, and I am not telling you today, that if you really want to imitate Jesus, you better go sell your house that you can be homeless. Or you better eliminate most of your wardrobe so that you can emulate Paul. Or you better not have a lot of food because he was hungry and thirsty. Well, it would probably be better for me, at least if we set less food. But nevertheless, this is not a legalistic list that if you do all the things that he's done... No, remember, imitating is not a perfect copy. It's a patterned copy. It's not just trying to do everything Paul did, live exactly how he did, but it's taking the imitation of the life of Jesus, putting it in my context, in my life situation, and making choices based on it. It is not a legalistic list. It is a loving lesson that you can become like Paul because he is becoming like Jesus. So he says, I'm your father in the faith. So we would say today in our 21st century vernacular, like father, like son. And Paul would agree, spiritually too, that I'm your father and you're my children. So why don't you imitate me? And he urges them in verse 16, I urge you. It's the same word used to open this epistle in chapter 1 and verse 10. It's translated pleading. Paul is pleading with them. Listen, here's how Jesus wants you to live. You can see it when you watch me and how I live my life. By the way, can I stop here just for a moment? You and I need people to model the cruciform life for us. If we're going to imitate Jesus, the Corinthians needed Paul. And then we're going to see in just a moment, they needed to be reminded when Paul wasn't there, they needed someone else to come. And Paul says, verse 17, that's why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child. Because we need people that we can look to as examples who will take the time and sit down with us and train us to be like Jesus the biblical way. Paul trained Timothy. I call this the D-chain, the discipleship discipleship chain. Jesus trained Paul. Paul trained Timothy. And now Timothy was going to train the Corinthians. You see how it works? And here's what I got out. In verse 17, Paul calls Timothy and describes him as his beloved child. Same term used to describe the Corinthians just a verse earlier or two. In other words, here's the idea. You're my beloved children. Timothy's my beloved children. So if Timothy can follow me and Timothy can learn to imitate Jesus and Timothy can take on my cruciform ways, so can you. He had to start somewhere. He wasn't always like this, but I trained him and he learned it. So here's the thing, isn't it? Some of us want to cop out and say, oh, Pastor Walker, wow. (laughs) To follow Jesus, to really imitate him, to want to be like him and involve things at least like that in my life, that's a lot. Paul would say, no, Timothy did it. And now he's coming to help you do it. So that means this, it's not just for super spiritual Christians like Paul. It's for guys like Timothy. It's it's, it's for people, ordinary Christians, who aren't even named by and large in this passage in a town called Corinth. It's not too much to ask of them. It's not just for guys like Paul. It's not impossible to live counterculturally in this way. It's not too hard for single adults. It's not too hard for teenagers. It's not too hard to do in your marriage and in your family and at your job and in your neighborhood. It's not. 
Paul says what you really need is trained. And that's why I strongly encourage you when we come back to church that you get in a small group, that you get in a D group. Why? Because every one of us are imitating someone. And if we want to imitate Jesus, it is going to be incredibly difficult in our context to do it on your own. But to do it with someone else modeling it for you and training you and teaching you and keeping you accountable, oh, it's still not easy, that's for sure, but it makes it so much better if you have a group of people that you're working at it together. And Paul says, see, discipleship is really a community thing. It's not just a one-on-one thing. It's you having Timothy come in the community in the context that you have and learning to follow Jesus. Paul would say it this way. Timothy had the same salvation you have. He had the same Bible you have. He has the same Holy Spirit you have. And you can be the same kind of disciple that he is. He is his beloved child. And according to the text, he is faithful In other words, he doesn't just live this once in a while. Timothy's life has been completely transformed. It's the same word in chapter 4 and verse 2. Stewards must be found faithful. Timothy is the kind of guy that took Paul's training, was discipled by him, and now he lives it out consistently. And here's what he's saying. And he's going to teach you to do the same thing. So, in fact, I would say this. Paul was not asking the Corinthians any more or anything more difficult then he had asked, listen to this, in every church of every Christian. Look at the text and what it says. He says, this is why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. And they needed reminded, and by the way, we do too. Watch though, as I teach them everywhere in every church. This was not just for missionaries, not just for Paul or Timothy the spiritually elite. It was for everyone and every church. Do you get that? This is for the ordinary guy and lady just like you and me. He uses very similar phraseology to talk about other things that Paul taught them. In chapter 7 and verse 17 of this book, chapter 14 and verse 33, he says, this is my rule in all the churches. 1433, and this is how there should be peace and not chaos in your worship services, as in all the churches of the saints. There were just things that Paul taught everywhere to every Christian that he expected them to do. And let me tell you this, imitating Jesus in a cruciform way was at the top of the list. So let me say as your pastor this morning and remind you what our... The motto of our church, our creed is, we exist... In our mission statement, we exist to be a community of disciples who glorify God by loving him supremely and others sacrificially. But you know how it starts? We are a community of disciples. We are a people who have banded together, who are greatly different and have a lot of things uncommon. But one of the things, most important things in our lives that we hold in common that brings us together is that we have all made this commitment that we are going to imitate Jesus, that we are going to follow him and over time, learn his ways. Paul says, I know it's been a while since I've been there, but let me remind you of my ways. A rabbi's ways were his halakha. And his halakha means the way he practiced Torah. And a rabbi would not only teach his students what he knew, but how he lived and how he interpreted it and what that meant for his life. And so they just didn't listen to his words 
and memorize his teachings. No, they wanted to be like him in every possible way. Paul says to Timothy right before he dies, it's so important this concept is, that right before he dies, he wants to remind him of this. 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, you have learned my ways, and he says, my aims, my faith, my conduct, my love, and how I responded in persecution. He goes to this list in verses 10 and 11, 2 Timothy 3, and he says, I've shown you all these things, and if you do them, you do all the ways. You just practice Christianity. You look at Jesus and imitate him like I have. Let me tell you, you will be acceptable to our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did we need reminding? Can I close with this? Why do we need reminding? Because in our context, like it was in Corinth, it is so easy to follow the wrong pattern. And you're going to see in the chapters to come all the ways they had deviated from the Jesus pattern and went to the Jersey pattern. For them, Corinth, but for us, Jersey. Chapter 5 is about sexual immorality. They were suing each other in the church in chapter 6. Their marriage relationships were a mess in chapter 7. They were still going back to the temples and idolatry was a problem. Eating meat offered to idols. Their worship services were chaotic. Their spiritual gifts were all over the map. And they didn't know what to make of the resurrection. I mean, throughout the remainder of this book, you're going to see, see, in Corinth, it was so difficult to follow the Jesus pattern. And it's nothing different here in the 21st century, is it, in America. Paul says, I'd rather come to you with love and gentleness, but if you make me, I'll come with the rod. And when I hear the word rod, I remember growing up, my dad had a paddle, and we called it rod. (laughs) It was an old racquetball paddle before they had strings and metal around it. They, it was just a wood racket, a big, heavy wood racket with lines drawn it like they were strings. And my dad, when he told us, hey, if you do this, you're going to get this many spankings, two, three, whatever it was. And that meant I was going to have the rod. And to this day, I'm not a big racquetball fan because I visited Rod. We had a very close relationship, unfortunately, way too often. And I can tell you this, I loved it when my dad talked to me and showed kindness and mercy and gentleness when he saw I was responding. But unfortunately, that was the minority of the time, not the majority of the time. More often, my life chose the rod. Paul says, listen, I'd rather have you choose the gentleness, but if you make me, I'm going to come and I'm really going to confront you about this. And then he stops at the end of our text goes right back to the beginning and talks about being puffed up. Can I close? 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the love passage quoted at marriages. Do you know the only time in the New Testament that puffed up and boast the two characteristics of being Corinthian are ever used in this text or in that love chapter? And here's what he says, love is not. Love does not boast and is not ESV arrogant, but it's the same word, It doesn't boast, and it's not puffed up. You see, below the surface, you know why the Corinthians did this way and imitated Corinth, and they chose that over Christ? It was a love issue. (laughs) Rather, a lack of it, to be honest with you. They were more in love with Corinth and the things of the world around them than they were with Jesus. And can I say that's the real offer I I, I, want to issue to everyone today would you come back and say hey you know what here's my opportunity to rekindle my love for Jesus 
that I'd want to be like him more than anything else. And, and I want God not just to change the outward things or different habits so that I can say I follow the right path. No, I, I want you, God, to change me down deep in the love I have. I don't want to love those things that make me go after the other pattern at school or ch- whatever. It might. I, I want to have a love for you even if, hear me, even if it means to the world and everyone around me, it looks so foolish. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. And then I'd like to, before we conclude our worship, to play an old song by Michael Card. It's a good one. He takes biblical concepts and puts them to music and makes you think. It's called God's Own Fool. Would you listen to it today? Hear the words. Let it challenge you. And by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, let it change you that you might want to imitate Jesus more. Father, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for this text. We desire and want to desire even more so that we would be like you, that we would imitate you, that your cross would be at the forefront of our decisions, that we would be disciples who take it up every day, die to sin and self and follow you. Help us to do that the more that we might reflect your glory back to you as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.